Church, uh, we're glad to see you. Can we just give the Lord a hand on both campuses? Amen. Well, if you are just now joining us, whether it be in person or online or on one of our campuses, we are glad to have you. And we look forward to seeing kind of how we continue to move forward uh, here on both campuses. And uh, if you are just now joining us, then perhaps you are in this uh, new season, you're going, hey, what does it mean to be a faithful husband, husband and a promiscuous wife? What, what have I been missing here? Uh, and what we are in the middle of is a series in the book of Hosea. And Hosea uh, was a prophet of the Lord, and he was instructed to do a handful of things. One, uh, he was instructed to, to uh, speak a word from the Lord. He was to receive a word and then to speak it accurately to the people of God. Uh, the second thing is he was go to go to the people of the northern tribes. Uh, the kingdom of Israel had sl uh, split uh, under King Jeroboam's reign. And uh, after it split, uh, he went to the northern tribes and he told them to repent. There were a lot of things that were happening in the days of Hosea and his life that he was encouraging many different kings in the, the time of his life to change course and to go a different direction. And the third thing uh, he was doing was he was... Um, he was to also take a wife that in God's foreknowledge said, hey, this wife is not going to be faithful to you. She's going to be unfaithful. And I'm going to use your wife to teach you the example of God's faithfulness to an unfaithful bride. And so God is trying to teach Israel who's been unfaithful in many ways and in all their infidelity, what a faithful God looks like. Meanwhile, he's using Hosea, who in his own home, there are many different disturbances and challenges that he is having to walk through with his own wife. And so as you have all of these things laid out before you. Hosea is encouraging the nation to be faithful to the Lord, and he's telling them, because you lack faithfulness, I'm going to have to bring about some change. And that change means is that because you won't repent, you won't alter your course, you won't go a different direction, I'm going to bring, your, I'm going to bring judgment upon the nation. And that's where we're in the middle of, uh, or actually in Hosea chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to Hosea chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to bless you and provide a Bible with you uh, for you today. Matter of fact, you can go to connection point uh, on either of our campuses, uh, and you can get hooked up with a Bible that you can read and, and use. The reason why is because we believe that in order for us all to be fully devoted followers of Christ, the way that God intends, that we ought to read our Bibles every day, that we ought to seek after his truth, and we do that best by the word of God. And so we would love to provide you that. If you're new to your Bible, you got one, you're like, I still don't know where to turn, though. Uh, if you get to the middle of your Bible, you can turn to the book of Psalms. Uh, from there, you head to the right. You're going to eventually get into the prophets. You're going to get into guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Uh, eventually, you're going to get to Ezekiel uh, as you head uh, to the right from Psalms. And after Ezekiel, you're going to get to another uh, prophet named Daniel. And after Daniel, you're going to get to Hosea. And so once you're at Hosea, you're going to turn to uh, the number nine. There's a big nine. It's going to be a chapter. And then from chapter nine, we're going to read verses one through nine. And we're going to move through that uh, fairly quickly. And then I've got a handful of implications as to what we read today. And so uh, let's begin. But real quickly, as we begin, um, I got a question for you. How many of you uh, would say, by a show of hands, uh, that it's been difficult to connect in this season with the church, local church? So you'd say, it's just been challenging, okay? Uh, in Edgewood as well, feel free to raise your hand. Okay, now what I mean by that is this. Maybe you've been streaming service online. Maybe you've been faithful to do that. But one of the questions I have is this, is... Um, 
when you connect online is do you find yourself singing or do you find yourself just in a sense watching? Uh, what I think happens oftentimes, uh, not only in the church when we meet together as people, but particularly in a season, a four-month stretch where you've kind of been watching online, if you're really faithful. Uh, for many of us, it's like, man, I found something else to do, like mow the yard on Sundays is kind of nice to do. And so you've disconnected. But even in, in the disconnection or even in the connection, I think we can find ourselves and we're like, in a sense, you were kind of spectators. Well, here's what's happened. Israel has become spectators. They have watched um, in the midst of some challenging seasons. And Hosea, in chapter 9, he says this in verse 1. He says, Rejoice not, O Israel. Rejoice not, O Israel. And then he says, Exalt not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved the prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Now, I don't have a chance to, to get into all of that today because we got young ones in the room. But what I want you to understand is what he's telling the people of Israel. He says, listen, no longer can you rejoice in me. Uh, Psalm 511 tells us to rejoice in the Lord, the one who is our refuge. And then it says to sing to him, to declare his praises. And that is really why we gather together. And it is the people of God is to rejoice in our great and marvelous God. Now, I don't know about you. Here's what I think is happening. Okay, now this is just me. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, but I have a, a little bit of a sneak peek as I get to, in some, some Sundays, I, I, I'll, I'll be on the front row and I can hear from people behind me. Uh, in some service, I'll stand in the back and I'll be able to watch everybody in front of me. And here's what I think is happening in the local church. I think what's happening in the local church all across the world is you've got kind of this run over from a disconnect over four months of time from people, from the word of God, the work of God in the local church. And then I'm not sure we even know how to respond when we come back together. I'm not even sure that we even know what it looks like to worship a holy God, to rejoice in him. And I'll tell you this, as I uh, think about this over the last couple of weeks, one of the probably the most disheartening things for me just so far, if I'm just candid and honest with you, um, is that it's been really difficult to watch the lack of response and rejoicing to God. Like, what does that look like? And then I think, man, it must be difficult in this day and age to be a worship leader in America, to, in a sense, trying to be leading people to the throne of God's grace. And yet the challenge is that sometimes we don't even know what we're rejoicing in. We're so used to being disconnected in our churches, disconnected in the work of God and the word of God, that even our response to God in worship seems to be somewhat disconnected. Could you imagine, though, that you got to the place that God's people said that no longer you could rejoice in the Lord? I mean, wouldn't that be disheartening that if you showed up on a Sunday morning to connect with other people to, to the Lord and to his work, and, and there, was a, there was somebody at the front door, and it just says, hey, the door's shut. There's no more rejoicing in God. Wouldn't that be challenging for you? You'd be like, do what? Do what? Like no more rejoicing in the Lord? Now, I don't know about you, but there was a, a mandate from uh, the, the governor of California that there would be no singing or rejoicing to the Lord. Did y'all know that? I don't know if you are, have been kind of catching up. He says, hey, listen, you can wear your mask, but there is no rejoicing. There is no singing. Listen, church, the reason we gather together is to exalt, to worship, to magnify, to glorify the name of our God. Mask, no mask, we come and we exalt his praises. And there's a lot of us that we've not been exalting 
the name of the Lord in our lives, with our lips, with our service to the king. And for some of us, we're going to have to remember what it's like to ride a bike and, uh, in a sense, to remember what it looks like to honor the Lord. And listen, I'm not near as interested in you raising your hands to worship as I am for you to prostrate your lives before the king of kings. But I'll tell you that as long as we read the word of God, we're a part of the work of God, our Sundays will look different. My concern is, is that as we get back together, what are we getting back together for? Is it to exalt the name of the Lord or is it in some ways to set our calendar aright that we have to start the week with a Sunday morning gathering? If that's the, the case, then by all means, friends, we might need to close these doors. We might need to consider a different work, a different place, a different uh, gathering. But here's the deal. If we're going to gather here, it ought to be sweet to our Savior. It ought to be a reminder of our rejoicing. It ought to be a pointing one another to the one we take refuge in. And that's what we're talking about. But Hosea, the prophet of the Lord in in, uh, his day, was telling the north, you know what? The doors are closed. Temple shut down. There's no more sacrifice. There's no more offering. There's no more of this. There's no more rejoicing in God. Could you imagine being there? Could you imagine not being able to come and exalt the name of the Lord? That's what's happening. He even says in verse 2, he says, The threshing floor and the, the, the wine vat shall not feed them. The new wine shall fail them. He goes, listen, because of the choices you guys have made, he goes, not only is... And in a sense, the altar's being closed. But he goes, you're not even going to have all the, the things that you're used to having. He goes, the production is going to fail you. Um, you're not going to have food for your families. You're not going to have uh, overflowing vats of wine. He goes, the threshing floors have even begin to be shut down. Now, the threshing floor was a place where the people of Israel would gather, and it would oftentimes be a place where they were to thresh the grain or the harvest. And when you think about threshing, you may be confused about that, but what they would do is they would take stalks of wheat and they would bring them together, and oftentimes it would be a communal activity. Many people would come and they would do it together. And when they did that together, they would throw all the wheat on kind of this solid surface, this a surface either made of stones or rocks, and then they would begin to thresh the wheat. And the way they thresh the wheat is they would either do it manually and they would take the stalks of wheat at the very top of them and they would hammer them until the wheat began to uh, break loose of the stalks. Or sometimes they would take animals and they would put them on a wheel and those animals would just tread on the wheat and they were crushing it, crushing it, crushing it, and they were breaking it loose of the stalks. And then somebody would come along and they would have this big old huge pitchfork type tool and they would take the stalks and they would throw them up in the air and they would remove the, the large parts of it from it and would just leave the grain. That was the goal. Then at some point after they had left a lot of the grain, they would take it and they would sift it. And after it was sifted and refined, there was still one other process and it was called winnowing. And the winnowing was when they would take it, uh, all the grain seeds that had fell into like a bucket or a jar or a vessel. And they would begin to pour that out while somebody fanned it as hard as they could. And what happened was all the little grass particles would blow off in the wind. And all you would have was the purity of the seed. And you'd do that time and time again. Now, could you imagine you're going to, to grind wheat, and you're going to make you some nice bread, and all you're eating is bread and grass? That'd be terrible, wouldn't it? You ever done that? Like you're eating food, and then you see somebody's hair in there or something like, oh, no, I'm done, or grass or something like that. You're like, I'm out. That's what would happen if you didn't purify or winnow it. And he goes, listen, the threshing floors... He goes, they're shut and they're even corrupt. He goes, what's happening is that people aren't threshing on the threshing floor. 
What they were doing on the threshing floor were other things like activities that were prom- promiscuous. So instead of getting together and doing what they ought to do, be doing the work uh, that God's called them to do, instead they're beginning to do promiscuous things with other people on the threshing floor. It became a place of corruption and judgment and hostility, and, and the Lord goes, I'm going to shut that down, and you're not going to have a harvest, and you're not going to have, uh, you're not have fruitfulness, and, and there's a lot of challenges. And then in verse 3, he says, and they shall not remain in the land of the Lord. He goes, I'm not going to just turn off the tap. I'm not going to just turn off the blessings of God. I'm not going to just stop rain and production and land and all those things. But he goes, now I'm going to boot you out of the land. He goes, you're not going to remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. And then he gives them a play on words. Hosea goes, listen, you remember where we came from? We came from 400 years of bondage to, Israel, uh, to Egypt and to uh, Pharaoh. And he goes, and God removed us from that. But guess what? God's going to send us back. And instead of it being uh, Egypt, he goes, he's going to send us to Assyria. He goes, it's not going to be pleasant. And so here it is because their unfaithfulness, they did not follow God, did not trust God, did not honor God, did not worship God. He goes, God is removing their blessings. No more fruitfulness in the land, no more um, blessing from God. The threshing floor is going to be closed. The wine vats are destroyed. They're not full, and the land is going to be removed. Verse 4, he says, And they shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. So if you think about this, if all of your harvest is shut off, that means that you have nothing to go gather in the field. That means that when it comes time to sacrifice or bring God grain offerings, there's nothing to offer him, right? So if you think about that, if you go out into the pasture and it's dry and it's barren and there's a drought and there's no produce, then what do you have to bring to the Lord? Nothing. And he goes, and that's where you're going to get. He goes, it's not that you won't bring the offerings. There is no offering to bring. Do you understand? Like it's a drought, it's weary, it's broken, and there is no harvest. Then he says this, and there's nothing to bring him, not even a drink offering. The grapes aren't growing. The wheat's not growing. Everything is depleted. And then he says this, It shall be like the mourner's bread to them, and all who eat of it shall be defiled. For their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. He goes, the only thing that will be available is a little bit to feed your family. But even that is not okay. It's defiled. And he says, it's going to be like the mourner's bread. Now, lean in with me real quickly, because I'm teaching you a little bit uh, about all this. But uh, the mourner's bread was what we saw in Numbers 19 that God instructed the people to do. And he goes, listen, I love you, and I want you to be clean people. Because if you're clean people, you're going to have long life in the land. But if you're not clean, you're going to die of an early age. So he goes, hey, let me give you one suggestion for cleanliness. He goes, when you have somebody that's dead in your tent, he goes, don't take your food that you've made after being a mortician and go share that with the rest of the village. That's not wise. Have you ever eaten lunch with a mortician? Okay, if you've ever eaten lunch with a mortician, which I have, there are a handful of things that you would like the mortician to do before you gather lunch. Now, listen, that's what he says. He goes, listen, when you head out of your tent and you've got a deceased body, he goes, you need to be thinking about that. Because if you take mourner's bread, as you've been mourning and preparing the body, you've been crying over them, preparing them to bury them. He goes, if you take your food out into public, it will not be clean. It will not be wise. He goes, here's what you ought to do when you think through that. He goes, on day three, you ought to wash yourself. On day seven, you ought to wash yourself. Now, listen, they didn't have showers readily available at their fingertips, right? We, have, we are so blessed, peeps. 
And so here he goes. He goes, here's what it looks like. Clean yourself on day three, day seven. Then you can go back out into public and you can rejoice and you can be thankful. You can bury your dead and you can go back about doing your business. But listen, friends, oftentimes that wouldn't happen. They would take their food and they would defile the whole community. Can you imagine an entire community being defiled? It's worse than the corona. It's bad. It's defilement, right? And, it's, and in a sense, it's corrupt. And what you need to realize is that as it moves about, it's defiling. So the goes, Lord goes, listen, don't do that. Wash your hands. Care for yourself because you don't want to defile everything. And here's what he says about the nation. The entire nation is defiled. It's worse than mourner's bread. This is where you guys are. You are in despair. You are in trouble. You are not honoring the Lord. There is nothing to bring him. Verse five, he says, what will you do on the day of the appointed festival, on the day of the feast of the Lord? He goes, you don't have anything to bring him on your daily sacrifices and your offerings. What are you gonna do when you're celebrating Passover? What are you gonna do when you're celebrating other feasts throughout the year? He goes, there's, there's no feast if there's nothing to bring the Lord. Guys, there is no Sunday gathering if we have nothing to bring the Lord. I mean, don't get me wrong, we can open up all our churches back, but if they're, if they're not consecrated, set-apart people that are looking for the holiness of God, there is no reason to gather again on Sunday mornings. Here's the craziest thing. There are many people who said, I'm going to sit out for four months until you open the buildings. Listen to me. The people of God don't do that. You don't get that choice. You don't get to go, I'm going to sit it out until we get together on Sundays again. There's no point. The people of God gather. And for the first time in our lives, we're about to understand what a New Testament church is going to be like. And when we're going to get squeezed and we're going to get pressed, you're going to begin to see all the fakes and the phonies. Why? Because the, the cream is going to rise to the top. The chaff, when the wind blows and the flower fades, all the chaff is going to go with the wind. And only what's pure, only what remains, only once not defiled is going to stay. You know what I'm most thankful for in this season? Is that we are truly seeing the contenders from the pretenders. In our conversations, I don't care if you were a deacon. If you don't abide in the word, you had no credentials. I don't care that you were a pastor. I don't care. If you are not his shepherd, you're not caring for people in a pivotal stage, you weren't ever a shepherd or a pastor. The title is not what's important to me. What's important to me is that we are not defiled in a season where you are seeing defilement lead out. And with the church, if ever a time is this, we have a chance to stand up, to not be blown away. But the chance is, is that that may not happen. The reason why is because we continue to wait on gatherings. I literally remember a text early on. Hey, join us online. No, I'm waiting until the doors open back up. Really? Is that what we're waiting on? If that's what we're waiting on, friends, listen, I think we've missed what the church is. There was not a New Testament church that consistently gathered corporately. But what you did see them gather in homes. You didn't see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people to get together in the masses. It's not, what it ha- it's not how it happened. What you did see is you saw people living together in community in small groups. You didn't have the mega church. You didn't have killer worship leaders. What you had was people who loved the Lord, sought to abide with him in every way possible, and they loved other people. That's what you had. 
And wasn't it a sweet and a beautiful thing as God added to the numbers, sometimes 3,000 at a time? That is what the church was. Verse 6, he goes on, For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them, Memphis shall bury them. That's not Memphis, Tennessee, by the way. Um, he goes, nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. What he does, he goes, hey, listen, they have nothing to offer the Lord. They're going to be corrupt. They're going to be defiled. They're going away to destruction. He goes, it's, it's going to be bad. He goes, they're going to be plundered. Just as the Egyptians plundered them, he goes, Memphis is going to bury them. And Memphis was a place in modern-day Cairo now uh, that had a, a large pyramid, and it was known for bodies being buried closely by. He goes, Israel is going to be buried. They are dead. They are barren. They are like mourner's bread. They are about to be put away. He says, nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. He goes, even their gold and their silver and all those things, they're going to be overrun. He goes, even their tents. He goes, you're going to look and it's going to look like a secret garden. Everything's going to grow up over them. It's going to, in a sense... Um, look like Dr. Doolittle's place and in his depression. Everything's just going to grow over. There's not going to be life. There's not going to be vibrancy. It's going to be, in a sense, depleted, and everything's going to be overgrown. He goes, Israel is going to be made a, park lot, a parking lot. It's going to be desolate. You're going to see weeds growing through the cracks. It's going to look like an empty Walmart. The buildings are going to be shut. It's going to be blockaded. It's going to be, in a sense, there's no hope. There's nothing life-giving happening. He goes, that's what Israel will be. And in 722, Hosea's words came true as Assyria came from the north, and they ransacked, and they booted Israel out of their land. Maybe you're here and like, man, I just don't know if I can trust the Bible. Listen, I can tell you this. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy have been spoken and come true. One of them, at least 15 years before Assyria ever ransacked and kicked the, uh, the northern tribes of Assyria out of their land, God, he, he told them it was going to happen. He goes, and listen, it's going to become a, a depleted parking lot. It's going to become ruins. Why? Because you have not worshipped the Lord. Yeah, don't get me wrong. You've brought him blind and, and, and lame uh, lambs. But the Lord doesn't want your blind lamb that's gouged out with one eye. He doesn't want your lamb with a broken leg. He wants the very best you have to offer. And he goes, and you yet to bring it. And he goes, and so he is closing the gates. He is shutting down. That's what he's done. And he goes, and listen, I get it. In the days of punishment, verse 7, he goes, even though, even though they come, even though there's recompense that's come, he goes, Israel's going to know it. And he goes, and here's what you're going to do. You're going to say, the prophet's a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of the great iniquity and the great hatred that you have. So he goes, here's what you're going to do. You're going you're to look at your prophet, and at first you're going to give him an eye roll. Even though he's telling you about the things of God, you're going to give him an eye roll. Parents in here. Any parents in here? Both campuses, Edgewood, raise your hand. Any parents? Go ahead, raise your hand. Y'all, y'all ever had a kid eye roll you? Mm-hmm, yeah. You got it? My little girl, she's, she's seven. She got the eye roll down. You know what I'm talking about? Listen, you want a daddy to come out of his chair? You eye roll me. I'm like, girl, you, hey, you, you want to do that, right? So, you, and then listen, do you know from the eye roll that it moves to another level, though? It's an eye roll and a little <sighs> exasperation. Y'all know that one? Some of you mamas taught your daughters that. That's where they learned that. Yes, okay. Uh, and then some of you are like, no, it wasn't mama. It was daddy right there. You want to point right now to daddy. Go ahead and point to daddy. Go ahead. We're going to pray for him right now. Y'all been there? And then listen, though, there's a point, though, in a teenager's life when they don't know or walk closely with the Lord that the eye roll becomes a puff, and the puff becomes a slam door, and then what it leads to is death and destruction and damnation. It, it brings about something that's corrupt, defilement, because the, what starts with an eye roll moves to a huff, 
a slam door, and then eventually a rebellious lifestyle. And the rebellious lifestyle leads to death. And that's where Israel was. And listen, when you speak truth into a person who eye rolls you, huffs, puffs, and storms off, they see your truth as a lack of wisdom and discernment. As they seek to do what's right in their own eyes, everything else is foolish and stupid and, and, and it's, it's not worth listening to. And for all you kids in here that are 10 and under, I apologize. I just used a bad word called stupid. So please forgive me. So listen, that is where you can get to. And so everybody's rolling eyes. They're looking at Hosea and they're going, you have no idea what you're talking about. And listen, it's not just Hosea, it's Isaiah. They do the same thing with Amos. They do the same thing with Micah. They'll do the same thing with Ezekiel and Jeremiah. They're going to do the same thing with the prophets. They're going to torment them. And some of them, they're going to kill them. For some of them, they're going to chase after them like Elijah did when Jezebel sought to kill him and go after him. Some of them are going to be buried in muddy pits. Some of them are going to be like Stephen as he speaks to the local church in Acts chapter 7. And they're going to pick up stones and they're going to throw them at him. Listen, can you ever get to a point where God's people say something that's true and they get attacked for it? You think we'll ever see that in our day and age? Do you think when you see that in your day and age that maybe you realize a handful of things are happening before us? See, that's, that's why the people of God matter. Even though they eye roll you, even though they exasperate it, they huff and they puff at you, and even though they throw things at you or they say things maliciously about you, isn't it important for the people of God to stand their ground? Isn't it important for them to continue to be watchmen on their post? That's what he says about the prophet Hosea. Matter of fact, Hosea says that the prophet is a watchman of Ephraim with my God, yet a fowler snares on all his ways, and hatred is in the house of God. He goes, listen, even though you're trying to catch me, even though you're trying to throw a net over me just like you would a bird, he goes, I get it, I see it. And he goes, and you're trying to trap me. But listen, you can't trap the people of God if God is on their side. Matter of fact, isn't that what Paul says in the church of Romans, Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? It may cost you your life. It may cost you your reputation. It may cost you your business. It may be difficult. But listen, the people of God are different. Even though they are exasperated towards you, they huff and they puff and they do things maliciously against you, the people of God are set apart. They're consecrated. Verse 9 says, And they, meaning Israel, have corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. Now listen, I can't share with you what that means in the days of Gibeah, but he says he will, meaning God will remember their iniquity and he will punish their sins. Now the reason I can't share with you is because it's a story about a Levite and his concubine and the Levite goes and gets his concubine from his father's house after she had left him and had been gone for about four months. But as she, he goes and gets her and stays at the father's house for a handful of days, he says, we're going to go back home. As they go back home, they decide that they're going to um, stay not in Jerusalem because he was afraid that the, that wouldn't be a people of And so he goes five miles north and he lands in the the little community of Gibeah. And he goes, we're going to stay the night in Gibeah. And then what you see in Judges chapter 19, which I encourage you to go read, starts a war in Judges chapter 20. And the reason why it starts a war is because what the people of Gibeah did to this man and his concubine is deplorable. Matter of fact, it would be so deplorable, it would even remind you of a story in the Old Testament called Sodom and Gomorrah. So deplorable, so wicked that God would bring about his judgment and it would start a war in Israel. Now, the reason I tell you that is because this is where the nation is. Hosea goes, listen, you are like the days of Gibeah. Wickedness is all around. It's rampant. 
God is about to bring about judgment. And listen, here's what I would tell you is this, is that while we read about Hosea and we read about how he shares with the people of Israel, I can't help but think about three things that I see to be true right now. And the number one thing that you need to see as I think about Hosea and all of these things is that you and I live in a very perverse world. Guys, do y'all know that? We live in a day where perversity rules and reigns, where the internet has become breeding grounds for not only division and destruction and pain, but also it has crept into the local church and brought about sinfulness in ways that we have never, ever, ever, ever seen in our lifetime. The only difference is, is that it's not always visible to every single person. It's usually hidden in the secret places, but it has corrupted men and women and their marriages and their children now for decades. We live in a perverse world. John, the apostle, says this. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. Every perversion that you know and see in our world is not from God, but it is from the Father of lies, John eight forty four. It is from the devil, the adversary, who is the prince of the power of the air. He is the, uh, the ruler of this day and age. He is the one who distorts and lies to people. He is the one who wants to ruin families. He is the one who is going to use men and women to bring about destruction, division, and in some ways a disconnection from the local church in these days. It is a perverse world, and he has his reign. It is not only perverse because of Satan, but also perverse because of our deceitful and hardened hearts. Romans 3.23 says that we are all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. Jeremiah, the prophet, in chapter 17, verse 9, says that all of our hearts are deceitful. They're sick, desperately. Who can understand it? Our hearts are hard, they're corrupt, and we need a holy God in a perverse day and age. Isaiah, chapter 24, the prophet, who also ministers in the day of Hosea, he says this to the people of Israel towards the south. He goes, listen, the earth is going to be defiled, and it's defiled because of corrupt people. Go read the entire chapter of Isaiah 24, and you will see what we see in this day and time. But here's the deal. Do y'all realize that even though we live in a perverse world, that that's not the end of it? Do y'all know that? Hey, lean in with me, friends. Do y'all know that? Because there is a pillar of truth called the people of God. So the people of God are to be salt and light. It is Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 and following. Uh, we are to be a, the salt of the earth. Even though the world around us is losing its saltiness, we are to provide saltiness. Even though the world around us is dark and in despair, guess what? We are to be the light. We are to be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. You can't, you can't just cover us up. Why? Because we're the people of God. Can I get an Amen. See, in a world of disconnected, for four months, you've stared at a TV, and you're like, oh, should I say anything? Listen, we're back in person, baby, and we should say amen. Amen means we agree. The world is dark, and we are to be light and salt. We are to be the preserving agent when everything around us is dying and fading away. We are to display the gospel. Why do we display the gospel? Because Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15. He says, hey, we are the pillar and the support for truth. That's what he says. I mean, he goes, hey, listen, let me tell you how you ought to behave in the household of God. He goes, this is what it looks like. It's the church, the living God. You are a pillar and you're a support for the truth. Why do we gather, friends? It's to remind each other that we're not to give way. It's to remind each other that people have a choice. They can bow down to pillars of greed they can bow down to pillars of Asherah if you'd like. That's what they did in the Old Testament. Hey, they can be uh, bowing down to pillars of golden uh, cows or pillars of 
of presidents or pillars of governments or pillars of education and school and what you want for your kids. You can bow down to the pillar of freedom uh, in the United States and to happy and healthy lives. Or you can bow down to the God who is a part of an unshakable kingdom. You can bow down to the one whose firm foundation says that when the waters rise and, and the storms blow, that you don't have to be shifting, tossed to and fro, as Paul would write to the Ephesians. Why? Because we live on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ. We are a pillar of truth. And as a pillar of truth, we display the gospel and the way we live our lives. Hey, listen, we declare the gospel with how we preach. We are the beautiful feet of those who bring good news, Romans 10. That means if they're going to hear, guess what? We're going to have to share it. No longer can the American church begin, continue to buy the lie that, hey, you know what? I don't really have to say anything because they just know it because of the way I live. Listen, you are living in a culture now that if you don't speak up for the gospel, you will never be heard. Because the people who want to be heard are speaking loudly. And they're speaking about things loudly that have absolutely no biblical foundation or basis. Many of the people that are advocating for rights around us don't even know what they're advocating for. And you need to know what you advocate for. Paul says um, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, he goes, you ought to preach the word. You ought to be ready in season, out of season. Friends, let me ask you this question. Are you so connected to your Savior and to the word of God that you're ready to preach if you're asked? Hey, if, if, I'm, if, I, if I'm to put you in front of your coworker tomorrow and they need hope and they need prayer and they need counsel because their life is in shambles, are you ready to point them to? Or are you going to say, hey, hold on, let me take you to my pastor? Because listen, if your answer is, hey, let me connect you up with someone else, that's not God's desire for you. God's desire is no longer for you to bring the people to the pastor, but you are the people. You are the shepherd. You are the equipper. You are the one who is to point people. You are the pillar of truth. Amen? You are the light. You're the one who displays it. You're the one who declares it. That's the goal. Why? Because that's what Christ has called us to, even to die for the gospel if that's what it takes. Could we live in a day and age in this season that we might end up having to die for the gospel? As scary as it seems, could we be there? Yes. Hey, you want to separate the wheat from the chaff on the threshing floor? Talk about dying for something. Hey, you want to see what the American church is really made of? You want to see if these mega churches are really that mega? Hey, you, you want to see... You want to see how faithful are the bride of Christ is in this local body? Let's start talking about what it would look like if we gave our lives for the gospel. Friends, that's what Christ is calling us to. Why? Because we live in a perverse world where there be the pillar of truth. And you know, the only way that we continue to make it is we cling to the promise of God. You know what's crazy about Israel and the heritage they had? And you know what's so crazy is I read Hosea and I spend daily time in the Word just reading through Hosea and I read all the Old Testament stories. And listen, if you want to know about their history, all you got to do is read the Bible. It's all there. Like you don't have to go like, hey, uh, I wonder what Wikipedia has to say about it. You can go. Go to Wikipedia. But listen, when Hosea is speaking, he's telling them everything that's already happened in their heritage. And listen, when I explore that, you know what's so crazy about this? Listen, they were the people of God. He goes, listen, can I give you long life in the land? Hey, when you're a mortician, don't eat the bread. Don't give it to your friends. Don't pass it around. If you do those things, disease will run rampant. I'm going to give you preservation. I'm going to give you life. I'm going, to, I'm going to make you a people that every other nation dreams to be like you. 
Can you imagine that? And then here's the deal. How long did it take them, though, before they went south? They drifted away. That's what's so amazing about this. That's what's so amazing is that they had the promises and the covenants of God, and all they had to do was cling to them. All they had to do is wrap themselves around the refuge and the pillar of strength. And friends, that's all we have to do as well. Hebrews 12, 28 says this, and I'll close with this. Therefore, let us be grateful, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And this, let, let us offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and all. Hold on, let me read that to you one more time. You listen and lean in. Both campuses, lean in with me because we're about to close. And we're going to do that by singing, which is one response of worship. It's not worship, it's a response of worship. But he says, we are a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Why? Because we have a pillar of truth, a firm foundation that is never shaken. The world's going to fade away. The flowers are going to fade away. But Jesus and his word will remain forever. And so will his followers. Regardless of how much the kingdom is shaken. And he goes, and so let us offer our God an acceptable worship. Acceptable worship. What is acceptable worship? Friends, can I just ask you a question? Just, just real quick. Is this acceptable worship? I want you to answer that for yourself. Really, think about that real quick. Is this acceptable worship? I mean, think about it real quickly. Why did you come? Why are we gathering? What is the purpose? If we're going to be light and salt, guys, if we're going to remind one another when our world is in shambles to be faithful. Listen, I need some of you to get a backbone, and I need you to encourage me through the week. Listen, I shoot out text every week, and I rarely hear from text. There's not a lot of people going, hey, Brandon, I'm praying for you in a season where this whole world is fading away. Hey, how can I encourage you? That doesn't happen, and I'm not trying to guilt you. What I want you to realize is this. I need other people to have a backbone in this day and age. Why? Because, listen, our lives are our worship, and I pray that we will give him all we have. And so, listen, sometimes we need the Sunday gathering just to remind each other that, hey, we're about to go into a very dark world. It's going to be hard. You may get eaten, but when you get eaten, you come back here, and we'll encourage you, and we'll send you out with a handful more people. Jesus sent out the 72, two by two. And he said, and you're going to go out among wolves. It unchanged. And so, friends, may we encourage our hearts. May we strengthen one another. And may we do that as we respond to the Lord in singing. Um, for some of us in here, um, our service, because of the flexibility, um, it's going to go like 10 minutes over. And there's some of us who are like, oh, we're already hungry or we're already like desiring a, a cheeseburger or something. And listen, like, Lord, would you teach me, God, like in this season to deny my flesh just to hear from you? That's what it is. We don't have kids ministry. There's no one to pick up. Kids in here, listen, parents, are not a distraction to me. Not a single one of them. You're all like panicking because you're like, oh, my gosh, I don't know if I can bring them. Bring them on. That's how we learn. That's how we teach. You're not going to be a distraction to me. You, so you might make somebody else upset. Oh, well, they'll be okay. We'll remind them about why we gather. Church, this is a sweet season. And the reason it's a sweet season is because for the first time in 20 years of ministry, I actually get to talk about real things. 
we actually get to say, hey, this is real. This is happening. This is not perceived. I'm not just reminding you of the New Testament church and how difficult it was. This is real. This is real time, and it's time for the church to be the church. I pray that our gatherings only get sweeter from here. I pray that our community groups only get closer from here. I pray if you're in a community group and you haven't talked to each other, surrounded one another, prayed for one another, encouraged one another, I pray you would dissolve your community group and get another one. Why? Because in the hardest season of our lives, we're not living in community. You're never going to live in community, friends. That's tough, isn't it? I've talked too long. Let me pray. Father, I love you. I pray that you would spur us on towards love and good deeds. I think that's what the text means. I think that's what it means. I pray that we would encourage one another towards the faithfulness of God. I pray that we would remind each other of the sweet and the savory um, ability to come into your presence and to um, not only come into your presence, but enjoy your presence everywhere we go. That your presence just doesn't exist on a Sunday morning when we have some really great songs. And, uh, but Lord, that your presence is with us wherever we go. I pray you would give us the courage to be the light and the hope. I pray, Lord, that we would be a pillar of truth, a beacon of hope, light, salt, a priesthood of believers. And I pray, Lord, that the church would flourish in American ways that it never has before. Father, I pray even at the sound of my voice, if there's somebody that's hearing this and they're like, man, this is not a church I've ever seen or heard talking about. I pray today they would come to know you. I pray that is what our time would be about. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.